0: This week's reading for the 17th Sunday after Pentecost comes out of Luke chapter 17, verses 5 through 10. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you rather not say to him, prepare supper for me? Put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink. Later, you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we have ought to have done. The gospel of the Lord. Well, folks, may the grace and peace of our triune God be yours today and forever. Amen. This weekend is kind of a special one in my house, and it's special for a lot of different reasons, but one of the things that makes this weekend kind of cool is that for the first time, my son, my oldest, is home from college. He's, he's in his first year of college, and, and he's home for the first time, and I'm pretty excited about that, that he's home. Now, maybe you've noticed this before. Whenever you're talking with a parent and, they, and the, the, the conversation comes around to a kid that's in school, the question's always the same. Oh, what are they studying? What's, what's their major, what's their area of study? Well, my son is studying something called wind turbine technology. So if you've ever seen the great big uh, windmills that are kind of out, they, they're sort of all over here in the upper Midwest where I'm from. If you've ever seen them, they generate electricity, they catch the wind. There's these humongous windmills. So he's learning all about how to maintain those, the mechanics that goes into them, and like things about electricity, and a lot of stuff that's really above my head, both metaphorically, because I don't understand it, and literally, because it's, they're clear up high, he can climb them if he wants to. I'm not going to. But that being said, Things are going well. He's enjoying it. He's really, things are, he's enjoying his classes. His classwork's going good. But just the other night, just a few nights ago, I got a text from him randomly with a picture, and he was doing some calculations. He was doing some various things for an assignment. And he says, dude, do you have any idea how to do this one? This one is stumping me. And I looked at it. And it was, there were different values that were listed, some of which I could kind of understand, and some of which I didn't really know what they meant. Like, we, it gave us, I, I've got it written down here, I want to look at it. We've got, it gave us the length of the blades of the windmill, and it gave us the RPMs, the revolutions per minute, how many times it was spinning around in a minute. Then it gave us something called the tip-speed ratio. And I looked at that value, and I'm like, I don't have a clue what that means. And then there was a big question mark next to the wind speed. That's what this question was actually getting at, was given this information, can you calculate the wind speed? And he says, I'm kind of stumped about this. Do you have any idea? And I kind of looked at it for a minute just blinking. I was oblivious. I had no idea. I'm like, I don't think I know, but let me think about it for a second. Now, he had asked me because I've kind of got a math brain. I've always sort of enjoyed that. And he thought, well, maybe, maybe dad can help me figure it out. And so I got to thinking about it. And what I do know about math says that if, if we have something in here, there's probably some equation or some formula that we would utilize to, to find that. And so I asked him, I said, well, is there some formula that, that you've been given? And he says, well, I'm not really sure. And so we had to look outside of ourselves. Like, he was looking outside of himself asking me for help, and I had to look outside myself to increase the knowledge of this whole situation. Like, how do I get this? And the one that I didn't know is that oddball one, tip-speed ratio. I'm like, I feel like that's probably something important. And so I had to look for new knowledge, a.k.a. I Googled it. And folks, Google did not let me down. Google showed me the equation utilized to determine the tip speed ratio. Now in order to find the tip speed ratio, you have to know the wind speed and you have to know the speed that the tip of the blade is actually moving. And now I got to thinking, okay, now we're getting somewhere. We're trying to find the wind speed, but we know the ratio. And that means if we can figure out how fast that tip is moving, then we can go through and we can calculate all this out. And now here's where my brain took the next step. And I was really proud of myself here because I started pulling in some basic geometry, circumference of a circle, because that's what we have to find. We want to find the speed. We have to know how far around it's moving, how far it's traveling over a given amount of time. That's what speed is. And so we knew the diameter because it gave it to us. And I'm like, oh, geometry, diameter times pi. So I did some calculating. And I found that value. So now I know how far the end of that blade goes around in the big circle. And we were given also the revolutions per minute. So now we know in a minute how many times it goes around. So we can calculate the total distance it goes in a minute. Well, if you can figure that out, you can then figure out how far it moves in a second. And it's in meters. And I kind of got to looking at it. I'm like, okay. So I did these calculating. And I'm like, um. Uh, 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 Okay, I think I've I've determined how far it's moving in a second and if we know the speed that it's moving and we know the actual final ratio, we can do some simple algebra solving for the unknown and come up with the wind speed. And so I did all these calculations. I worked through them and we came up with an answer and now I forget exactly what the values were, but it was like 14 meters per second of a wind speed and I asked him, I said, okay, um, in your classes, the conversations that you've had, does that sound like that might be some, something of a, of, a, of a correct wind speed? And he's like, yeah, that actually sounds pretty good. I'm like, okay, cool. I said, I think that's your answer, but I could be wrong. Again, this is outside my area of expertise. I could be wrong. So tomorrow when you take this to your professor and turn it in, see if we're right. And if not, make sure you connect with your professor to find out, to determine what was doing wrong so that you learn. It. I'm like, I don't need to know this, son. You need to know this so you make sure you're on top of it fast forward to the next morning. I get a text. I looked at it. And he's like, you were spot on correct. And I'm like, yes. He says, but get this. And I'm like, oh, there's more. The plot thickens. And he says, the professor said, I just wanted to see if you guys could do this. When you're actually out in the field doing this, we have computers that will calculate it all for you. It'll be given to you. You don't even have to worry about it. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I couldn't believe it. But you know what? That situation Him asking me for help and then me having to ask Google for help. This is a pretty good example of what's going on in our scripture lesson today. It's very, very applicable. The same sort of thing is going on. It has nothing to do with windmills. It has nothing to do with wind speed. But the same type of situation is still there. As our scripture lesson picks up today, we have this strange request from the disciples. The very first thing we hear from the disciples is, Lord, increase our faith. Just like I had to ask Google, increase my knowledge. They're like, Lord, increase our faith. Now, that's a good thing, but it sort of raises the question of like, why are they asking this in the first place? Did we walk into the conversation halfway through? Did we miss something? And so in order to understand what's going on, we got to back ourselves up just a little bit. Now, if you have tuned in to recent, through recent weeks and the different teachings, the different lessons that we've had, we've had this ongoing time. When Jesus is still teaching and he's he's encountering a lot of different people and he's teaching, sometimes he's teaching his disciples, sometimes he's teaching the crowd, sometimes he's interacting with critics and, and he's kind of in debates, but he continues over and over and over again to use illustrations and times of teaching to talk about what does life look like as a disciple? What does life look like as one who follows Christ? What does life look like in the reality that the kingdom of heaven has come near, which, folks, is the general message that Jesus gives. Gives us in the first place. The, the ongoing things have been going on. Now, we've had a lot of different parables, and if you've tuned in and you've you've heard any of our recent teachings or, re, or recent sermons or recent videos, you know that some of them are kind of head-scratchers, and we are like, well, okay, I sort of see what you're getting at, Jesus, but that's, that's hard to understand, and it's hard to live out, and, and that's really, really difficult, and that seems to be the same ongoing situation. Now, in the verses immediately preceding where we pick up today, just the first the first couple of verses of chapter 17, we hear Jesus talk about opportunities for stumbling will occur. There are going to be times when a brother or a sister stumbles; they sin against you, they trespass against you, they somehow harm the relationship between you, between the two of you. But if they repent you must forgive them. And it seems to be vice versa as well. Jesus is like, there's going to be times when you're going to stumble and they're going to call you on something. And there's going to be times when they're going to stumble and you're going to call them on something. But if they repent, you must forgive. Now, initially, it seems like, well, yeah, that seems like a no-brainer. We get it, Jesus. Okay, none of us are perfect people. We understand that. But when we sin against someone, we have to repent. We, we, We have to ask for forgiveness. And when someone sins against us, they ask us for forgiveness. We forgive them. We get that. But Jesus goes on. And he says, even if they do so up to seven times in one day, you must forgive. And at this point, I think the disciples are probably blinking and confusing, just like I was when I started looking at that, that calculation problem. Like, what? Seven times? I have to forgive seven times if, if they repent? And now, now think about this. I, I was trying to come up with an example, and this is the best I could do. Imagine your friend comes up to you and he says, um, I needed to go somewhere, and, and I don't have a car, but I saw your car keys laying there, so uh, I know I didn't ask, but I, I took your keys and I used your car. But I'm sorry. Oh, so you basically stole my car. Okay, but, well, you, re- you repented. You, you asked for forgiveness, so okay, I forgive you. Um, yeah, um, but when I was bringing it back, um, I, w- I was putting it back in the garage, and I, I, I kind of gotten a little bit of a fender bender with your car, but I'm really sorry. Oh, okay, so you stole my car, and you wrecked it, but you're sorry, okay? I guess I forgive you. Um, yeah, so here's the thing. So uh, when I was pulling it back into the garage, I accidentally kind of ran over your gas can that sits there for your water, and there must have been a little bit of a spark because it, it, there, it, it lit on fire, and that kind of lit your garage on fire. And, of course, you got an attached garage, and so I, I, I burned your house down. But I'm sorry. Okay, you stole my car. You got in a fender bender. You wrecked it, and you burned my house down? But I forgive you? I mean, that's, that's three. I can only imagine if we kept this example going all the way up to seven, how deep that would get. But you start to see the impossible nature. And I think the disciples also see this impossible nature. You want us to forgive seven times? Lord, I don't think I can do that. So now the disciples are starting to realize, okay, well, if we can't do what Jesus is asking us, if we can't do, if we can't live up to the expectations that are being laid out for us as followers of Christ, it must mean we are lacking somewhere. Uh, and Jesus talks about faith, so maybe that's what we're lacking. So Lord, increase our faith, add faith to us. At face value, you would think that Jesus would be like, yes, yes you get it. Faith is not self-generated. You do not create it yourself, and they are looking to the one who can give it to them. They're looking to God, Jesus, God in human form. Give us faith, add faith to us. You would think that would be how Jesus would respond, but instead, he gives this strange little teaching. If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, like the tiniest little seed, the tiniest little grain. If you had faith like a mustard seed, you could tell this mulberry tree be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would listen to you. What? Anybody else hear that and scratch your heads like, Jesus, what are you talking about? A, why would I want a tree planted in the ocean? That tree would just die, and it's out in the ocean. I can't do anything with it there. Anyway, it's absurd. So maybe, just maybe, Jesus is trying to be Absurd. Maybe he is not telling them that it's about quantity when it comes to faith. That seems to be the question or the request that the disciples are making. Like, increase the quantity of our faith so that we can believe better. And if we believe better, if we have enough faith, then we can do this amazing thing of, of, of forgiveness that you were talking about. Maybe Jesus is pointing out to us that when it comes to faith, it's not about a quantity. It's not like our soul has some faith bucket that gets low. And someone can come top it off. It's not about how much we have. Maybe Jesus is telling us it's either about having it or not. And faith can accomplish amazing, even seemingly impossible things. Now, Jesus starts with that. And I can imagine that the disciples are still sort of scratching their head. And so he goes on and he switches gears and he switches into a topic that maybe makes us just a little bit squeamish. He starts talking about slavery, the reality of slavery. Now, here's the thing about it. We don't like it, perhaps, because when we look back in our own nation's history, we have slavery there, and it's ugly, and we don't like it, but it's there, and we can't deny that. But I don't think Jesus is, is trying to either condemn or condone slavery. He's just acknowledging a reality of life in the culture that he was a part of. Slavery was a reality at that time, and his audience would have known it. And if we keep that in our minds, maybe we begin to, to pay a little bit more attention. And Jesus says, who among you who has a slave? And that slave has spent the day out in the fields, either plowing the fields or taking care of your flocks. And now it's supper time and that that slave comes in. You don't tell the slave, oh, sit down and make yourself comfortable. No, you say, get in the kitchen, clean yourself up, make my dinner, come out here, serve my dinner. I want to eat, I want to drink. And when I'm done, then you can. And given that, When the slave does what is expected of them, you don't tell them, thank you. They do what they said. And then he goes on from there and he says, "Or who among you when you do what you're supposed to do says we are worthless slaves, we only did what we were supposed to? This is a weird teaching. It's a strange, strange teaching. What is Jesus getting at? When we consider the whole thing together, I think maybe, just maybe, he is reminding us of the impossible nature of doing what we are supposed to do, what is expected of us in this whole reality of being followers of Christ. Remember, that's what prompted this in the first place. you got to forgive seven times. Jesus, we don't know if we can do that. Can you increase our faith so that we can? It's not about having enough faith in order to do it. And even if you had enough faith to do it and you do what is expected of you, it's still insufficient. I think that's what this this teaching of Jesus, this strange little moment, the scriptures in general, the gospel in general, I think what it's all reminding us of, of the impossible nature that we have as human beings to ever live up to expectations. We cannot earn it. It's not like there's some cosmic checklist that if we get enough check marks, we're good to go. We will never do it. That's the reality of this broken world that we're a part of. God made the world, called it good but not perfect. God made humanity good but not perfect. We are broken, we are flawed, and we will always come up short. But the truth of the gospel and the promise of Of the gospel, which Jesus has brought near to us, this kingdom of heaven that we live in in one way or another, whatever that means, tells us over and over and over again you cannot achieve it on your own, so God has done it for you. Think back to that example, what the professor told my son. When we're out there in the field, there are computers that will do the work for you. Likewise, the gospel tells us you cannot earn this. God has done it on your behalf. And through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, it is already done. And the promise of the gospel is that it is given to you. Now, here's the thing. The fact that we do not earn salvation, we do not earn God's favor, we do not earn God's love and claim upon us as beloved children does not let us off the hook from living our lives in a way that reflects the reality of the kingdom of God. Jesus says that over and over and over again. This is what life as a disciple looks like. And at times it may feel impossible. And at times it may feel like I can't live up to that. Lord, help me. And folks, that's the exact thing Jesus is saying. I cannot do it on my own. Lord, help me. When we acknowledge that truth about ourselves, that is the very act of repentance that Jesus was initially talking about. And when we turn back to the one who made us and loved us and claims us, the promise is, is that that salvation, that work is already done for us by Jesus. Maybe it feels like a bit of a paradox. We can't earn it. We'll always come up short. We look to the one who is able to do something only to find that that has already been done for us. That is the promise of the gospel. And folks, it is for